Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Absolutely delighted to have this opportunity to introduce all of you to essayist, memoirist, poet, playwright, and educator, Anne-Marie Uman, who teaches nonfiction and poetry for the Solstice Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing Program at LaSalle University. Anne-Marie, who writes and thinks and reads in a small shed on her remote property in northern Michigan, is the author of seven books. Not only is she a late bloomer, whose first book was published when she was 53 years old. Her most recent book, titled As Long As I Know You, The Mom Book, has won the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Sue William Silverman Award for Creative Nonfiction. The book focuses on the troubled relationship Anne-Marie held with her mom as her mom entered dementia and how, As Anne-Marie began to lose her mother, they somehow, in awkward and comic ways, found each other. It is a compelling read for any adult grappling with a living elder who is challenging and difficult to begin with, then add the lethal combination of dementia and defiance to the painful mix. I'm looking forward to talking with Anne-Marie about being a late bloomer whose first book was published when she was 53 years old. Bravo for that. The way she came to understand her mother over time, how the book was written from a place of knowing and not knowing, the underlying issue of elder care in the United States, and the healing process for both Anne-Marie and her mother. Their tender and touching story will surely provide us with meaningful new insights. Hey, Anne-Marie, welcome to Grief oh, and Rebirth Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Irene. Thank you for having me. I, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm humbled that you say that. Thank you so much. Really, as Thanksgiving comes to us, thank you so much. And yes, mutually. Right. <laughs> so, Let's start by having everyone get to know you a little bit and your background. So you grew up as the eldest daughter on a working farm with parents who are devout old school Catholics. Please tell us about your childhood relationships with your dad, your siblings, and especially your mom. Thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. For the listeners, imagine a northern Michigan farm, about 200 sprawling acres, barns, outbuildings, animals, fields, harvest, the whole thing. It's a classic Midwest childhood. And from the outside, it looks pretty idyllic, but it wasn't. So I was very close to my father. He was a quiet man, immense intelligence, but he never finished high school. 
And he always regretted that. It was a deep flaw, he felt, that he could not finish. But he became an avid reader and a deep thinker. And we argued intellectually, but never with animosity. He was the kind of man who accepted and respected that I was a unique personality, and he was charmed by it. But in contrast, of course, my mother had huge expectations of my behavior and my thinking, and she wanted something of me that I couldn't give her. I think she wanted a more loyal, a more biddable, a more pliant person. And I just, I, that was not in me and she didn't know how to bend that. And it frustrated her. And then we're on a farm. My siblings and I are an unruly bunch. We are raised at a time when kids expected to help with the harvest, of course. And, but then we were also often because they were so busy, my parents trying to run this farm and survive and survive. Exactly. Exactly. Good. Yes. That we were often left to our own devices. So we also had these times to wander in the woods and get into our own kind of trouble. And so they grew up into being incredibly smart, hardworking, creative people, but very different from me. They embraced the land. And they embraced the farm, the agricultural world. And I didn't know where I fit. And for a while, Irene, being raised in a Catholic family, I thought there was this line, you will know this, there's always one for God. On those big old families, there's always one for God. And they thought for a while that, and I thought for a while, I should be in. I can so relate to what you're saying. Yes. So I sum it up by saying I grew up in this loving agrarian family, but I was not a good fit for them and they were not a fit for me. So there lies the conflict of my life. So let me ask you something just off the cuff that's tell me if my perception is incorrect, but it sounds to me like you had your father's intellect and it sounds like that's probably why he got such a kick out of you, even though you weren't exactly living the party line and you did not answer your mother's needs that probably came out of her childhood or whatever her circumstances had been. Of course, you are so right on there. I think he was amazed to have a daughter who wanted to speak ethics and justice and even biblical statements. We would sometimes argue about that. And and that just threatens my mother. It was not in her line of thinking what I should be. You weren't living her script for you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's Smart way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I, I can relate. So I cannot resist asking you about your being a late bloomer because I am too, whose first book was published when you were 53 years old. What inspired you to become a writer? And what would you like to share with us about your lengthy trajectory to finding your true purpose? Another great question. I think I was a late bloomer in a lot of things. It just took me a while to figure things out. And so I think I always I always liked scribbling and I kept journals and I enjoyed reading and I and eventually became a teacher of English and drama and I loved nurturing young people and I just really enjoyed that career. But when my first marriage failed and that's a time of immense reassessment 
when your what you thought was the love of your life and the deepest commitment of your life suddenly what, was he more someone who fit in with the screen? Not exactly. He was another artist, and they didn't. Oh. <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> out of the box. Out of the box. <laughs> Exactly, out of the box. So I had to reassess everything at that moment. And I wanted to, and I did. I And I realized I had always really loved writing. And so I used the last bit of money I had, and I went out and bought what was then called a video writer, which was a very early word processor. And I started taking classes. I started going to conferences. I started trying to learn about what a literary community was. I began that slow journey and it was slow because I had bills to pay. I had a house. I I was on my own. And so it took me 20 years, literally, to gain both the experience, to hone the skills, to develop the, the dream into manifestation. And I have to say, and this is what I really want to say to people, it's never too late to start. It's never too late to follow a dream or even part of a dream. And maybe the late blooms are the ones that we savor the most. It certainly gives us a reason to keep on going and going. We're not, you don't finish early with nothing else to do. You're like, it's like you extend it. It's a sweet extension of. Exactly. I think the blooms just keep coming if you stay open to it and you have a dream. I think that's the nature of it is I knew this was a really concrete dream. This came to me so clearly. This is what I really loved. And even though it didn't discount my love and my passion for teaching, it really made, it honed in on the creative elements that I had tried to nurture in my first husband. <laughs> but instead you nurtured them in yourself. <laughs> it hadn't worked. So let's talk about your mom and your really difficult relationship with her. You Mm -hmm. want to describe how you came to understand her better over time. And you and you gained this important insight from a trauma broken teenage girl with an anxiety disorder. You want to tell us about that? Sure. Mom, my mother and I, if you met my mother, you would have enjoyed her. She's a lovely woman. She had immense capacities, friendly, warm hearted but deeply troubled. And our relationship was troubled as a result. She was high strung. She Even she acknowledged that she had what at that time she called nerves. I have nerves. And that was the term she used. And she had moods. She was short tempered. I we didn't know when it was going to come. It was a really difficult. And I was Years later, I am teaching, I'm teaching a student who has trauma. And we are talking about her trauma. And she says, When I'm anxious, I can't help lashing out. I just feel this anger gush and explode out of me. That was exactly what she said. And I think the reason I remember it so clearly is because I don't know what state of mind I was in. We talk about messages sometimes, but I felt all of a sudden this connection. Oh, is it possible that my mother had an undiagnosed anxiety disorder or some form of PTSD. And as counseling this girl, I'm also clicking, it's clicking in my head, how many things are parallel to that and how much she had symptoms. She had suffered the loss of a baby brother. Her home had burned to the ground. Her father had become an alcoholic. And 
it wasn't in a time when it was appropriate or she wouldn't have thought it was appropriate for her to search for to those. seek help. It was like a shame to seek help in those days. But in my world, I would say she was filled with unresolved grief. I wouldn't be surprised. And her own mother was not a sophisticated woman and wasn't very literate. And I think she, my mother, ended up taking on a lot of the home responsibilities before she was actually prepared to do. And all of that left me with that sense of final insight that, oh, something else was terribly wrong that we were never privy to. Yeah, yeah. And it fills in the blanks later on if you can, if as you do your healing. What is the story about behind your title, as long as I know you? Oh, it's so amazing. After she was in a home and we'd gone through the familial process, and that's always difficult, and that's part of the story, too. I read Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. It's a beautiful book. And in that book, he talks about how we have to grapple with this question of what makes life worth living, what makes, what gives it value. And he he finally gets up the nerve to ask his own father this question. And his father says, if I can sit in my recliner, eat chocolate ice cream and track a Jets game, I want to continue to live. Wow, And so he has this information then, which interestingly enough, because it's so specific, gives him criteria for making decisions. So I finally work up the courage to ask my mother, and this is a chapter in the book, I took, and she doesn't like to talk about death. She's now, not, was this at the period when you asked her, was she in dementia or approaching dementia? Or? Approaching, the dementia was slow for a long time. We knew it was there and it there would be confusions, but then there would be moments of real alertness and perception. And then she would drift away again. And we learned times of day where she would be more able to communicate. And she didn't lose language until very late. So it was really a time when I could still talk to her, but we knew she needed to be cared for. So I finally asked her this question. And I expect her to scold me. I really do. She, I just know that's coming. And she looks at me and she answers it like it's a second grade question. She says, as long as I know you. She, it sat back. It was like something went through me like, oh, knowing each other. That's what she values. It has nothing to do with state of being or our past or it's that she recognizes me and I recognize her and that changed everything for us. It was just an astonishing response. And the beginning, I think, of the real gifts that that I began to see, finally. Yeah, you started, I think it helped you see her a little better. Oh, absolutely. And you realized that she was seeing you. She might not like everything she was seeing, but that was important to her that you were in her life and that she saw that you were there and she saw you. And there was also something, Irene, about the idea of knowing that knowing is a kind of sacredness in itself, that just being able to recognize someone and be with someone, that's a holy thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those are are sacred things. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a healing process that took place for both you and your mother. And I want to know, did your mother ever really eventually grow to accept you, including your non-compliance regarding your her desires for your religious life, because I know that upset her that you were not yeah, I an was obedient not, Catholic. 
not, although I think that's part of the story is she began to understand that I was spiritual, that I wasn't Catholic. But the thing, the answer to that question is, and it's going to sound so sad and bizarre, but as she enters dementia, she forgets our troubles. And she becomes in that process, she still knows who I am. I'm her oldest daughter, and but she forgets the past. And that makes her more tender and appreciative. And that put me, allowed me to enter a position to re-examine memory and to, to see it without her judgment always in place and to rediscover things about her and myself that were buried in my memory that had always been covered by our antagonism. And be, that whole idea of her deepening vulnerability called out to me in a way that we just hadn't had before. I had nothing to fight. So as I was losing her, I was making this, and we were making this incredible friendship, rebuilding it from that vulnerability, from that anticipatory loss. I let go of my animosity toward her. And I mean, sometimes I would even be able to pray with her. And she would remember those prayers. They were cellularly ingrained in her. And I would be able to see through that to the greater spirituality beyond the beyond. And, and in part, it was because in those moments we would hold hands. Oh, how beautiful. So there were, and we never held hands as children. How wonderful. Yeah. So it was just this process of these gaps in her memory escalating and snowballing into openings for me. Yeah. And you know what? Being a storyteller that you are, you were changing the story. The story was changing. Yeah, yes. The painful story was like, okay, that's one one addition there. Now we have a new addition. Yeah, exactly. That we're working on over here. Yes. And the process of transformation, I think, is very real. You know, that you are allowed to re-see, to re-vision that yeah. process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you have a story that has to do with accepting what we do, accepting that we do our best without always knowing or needing to know when we make a difference. Yeah. You want to tell us about that? My mother's life was not easy. And I don't think she felt a lot of confidence in herself ultimately. And she was so sensitive to shame and to what others thought. All of that was triggered her anger and her anxiety. And she always worried the biggest thing was that we would bring shame to the family because we were a little we were an unruly bunch, five kids and her foster kids. And there was just and in those days. And I know my parents also, there was, they were consumed with what other people think. Yes, absolutely. Yes. It was a huge and powerful sort of community ethos that you had to honor, especially where the church was involved. But here's the thing. I think that she did truly love us. I don't think we always made her happy. And I don't think she, if she had live today, she might have been the kind of woman who did not have so many children, or maybe not at all. But she loved us. So right alongside the fears and anxieties and nerves, she was also bringing us some gifts. And they were masked for a while. But 
she was trying to do her best. I think that love drove her to really attempt that. She did what she had to raise a family to be good people and she succeeded, but I don't think she ever fully understood that. So when I think deeply about that, I, I, it's, this is the metaphor I like to think of in terms of my own healing. It's like I'm in the dark hallway and I've come out of a room and I have to find the light switch. And even though we were so troubled, her love, that love, is her doing her best when she didn't know what she was doing. It's like switching the light on, coming in, in touch with that. It's just like finding that well, light. The light went on for you. Yes. To exactly. understand that. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it allows for acceptance and it allows for forgiveness. I And that is the real story. Is yeah. The, is her doing the best that she could so that I could make room for some goodness for her. And it allows you to heal. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Another question I had was, you: what did you learn about how the universe works? And what was the affirmation you received from your mother? This is a beautiful story that you had not hoped for or expected in any way. That was the gift, I think, that she really gave you towards the end. Yes. I'm not sure which chapter specifically you are thinking about. Didn't she tell you something, something about honey or she called you a name or affection? You remember that? That's the one, the story I'm referring to. Yes. Thank you for reminding me. You can see I really read your book. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is, this was right at the end during COVID. We had not seen each other. We had not been present to each other. It was her birthday. It was her, believe it or not, she lived a long life. She was 99. It was her, and it was April of 2020. And I drove down on these empty highways to the two hours to where her facility was, where they had been in lockdown for literally six months, or not six months, for two months. And I brought her a little thing, and we had to talk through glass. And the aide was trying to help us. But it was such an awkward conversation because my mother didn't understand the, gl- the glass. Right. And she kept staring at me and she would nod. And I would say t- what I wanted the aide to tell her and the aide would repeat it. And so the process, and I know many families suffered through this same situation. That was a horrible time not to be able to touch them. I told her I loved her. I wished her happy birthday. And I finally realized that it wasn't going to work. And she never said my name. And I thought, okay, this is it. She doesn't know me. And Irene, I turned away and I'm ready to leave. I'm really a mess. And she calls out just loud enough for me to hear her through the glass. Thanks for coming, honey. Oh, my. And no one calls me honey. I don't let people call me honey. But she has always called me honey. So even though she didn't say my name, I became at that moment a member of, she recognized I was a member of the tribe. I was her, I was her, her family. And that was time disintegrates. At that time, time goes away. We are standing outside of the universe or inside, fully inside the universe. Maybe that's a better way to say it. And I was just filled with gratitude. Yeah. Was that one of the last things you heard her say to you? That was one of the last things. And then a few weeks before she died, and she must have been entering active dying. She That was in April, and she passed away in November. She passed through in November. 
or completed this phase of the journey is what I like to say. And if I can just tell another anecdote. Oh, please. And you're welcome to. Please do. She was caught. She, the, the aides had figured out by then how to use these little tablets to get on FaceTime. So I didn't have to drive down and talk through glass. I could at least, I could put the FaceTime on and she could get on and I could at least talk to her and look at her face and study her. And most of the time they were five minute conversations that were one-sided and she did not respond. But this one time the aide got us connected and she said, she's been talking. I said, okay, I'm ready. And she wanted to plan Christmas dinner in the way that we had planned Christmas dinner for years until she, we weren't together anymore. And I, at my first impulse was to correct her and say, no, mama, it's COVID time. We can't come. And then I realized, no, I'm just going to go with this. I'm going to pretend this can happen. And she said she wanted to assign dinner assignments of food menus, my, what my brothers would bring, what I would bring, what the in-laws would bring. She went through the whole thing. Who brought the shrimp? Who brought the ham? Who brought the mashed potatoes? My sister had to bring potato rolls because she's the only one that could make them right. And all of this, she clear as a bell. Wow. And I haven't heard her say complete sentences in in maybe not even years, but not a whole conversation. And then the last thing I said, well, mom, what are you going to bring? And without a trace of irony, she says, angel food cake. <laughs> oh my. And then it was like the switch turned off. And that was her final gift. Her bossy in command, plan the meal, feed the family. That that was her final gift to me. And it was, it's something I just hold so dear because after that, all was silence. Right. She was doing her work with the dying. Then. I relate so to that, Anne-Marie, because our listeners, our viewers know my story. And the <sighs> night before he died, my husband said to me, I'm so lucky and thankful to have you in my life. And the next day was the accident. And I often tell people, so it was so important to you that you heard these things from your mother. And I often tell people, be so careful with what you say to each other, because it could be the last thing you ever hear. Oh, what? A, what and that stays advice. with you. That stays with you. Yeah. What good advice. Yeah. So that's beautiful. Um, so you decided to finish the manuscript of as long as I know you was part of your grief process. What was that all about? She died in November and, and it was, it was horrible because it was COVID and we couldn't be with her right at the end. Everything was wrong about her passing. And, and I had not previous to that, I had not been able to finish the manuscript. I started in 2014. I was looking for the ending and I was looking for the ending and I didn't want it to end with her death because it was such a cliche. I just thought you just, that is not the way to end it. And, and then she did die. And so I was in grief, working really hard. I was working with a fine therapist and I began, I don't know how to say this, her absence, death is not a, I don't want to discount death's, death's difficulty, but the grief drove me forward. The grief finally drove me back into the manuscript, wanting to honor that that she had done good. She had made me and my siblings 
And that grief, difficulty of those feelings kept driving me back to the manuscript. I began to feel like she was in the same room with me and finally observing and approving as she was there. My mother grief was propelling me toward these revelations about each chapter. Something was shifting in the chapters. And it was almost like she was saying, go ahead, you can write this. It's hard. It's true. But go ahead. And it was you were finally you'll pardon me, the expression. It's a little trite, but you were finally on the same page together. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so perfect. Yes, we were on the same page. So the grief, as hard as death is, and it's difficult, it led to it shifted our relationship toward transformation. And the grief then I finished the book the end of February and I sent it to the contest as an act of closure. So it's in this realm, it was just simply an act of closure. And at that point, I said, okay, I know this grief is going to have to be integrated into my whole life view and I'm going to have to treat it as a familiar. And at that point, it did become not, it, it, I'm not discounting its darkness or its difficulty, but it became quieter and it became more companionable at that point. It almost became, I think, as you were working it through, it feels to me like it almost became a sweetness because it was a peace and resolution with your mom that you'd never had before. And you'd probably been longing for it all your life. And now it, it finally came. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, Irene. And I, I had no expectations when I sent it off that it would be recognized at all. It was just coming to that point of closure. And I want to address what you just said about this, this serenity. When my father died, I felt like it was thunder. Everything about that grief was thunder. When my mother died, as I went through this, the metaphor that kept coming time and time again was wind chimes. That grief became more like wind chimes. No, I'd hear them, yeah, in the distance, and it was that kind of... Yeah, almost like a sweetness, yeah, yeah, and that can be, and I, what a beautiful thing. So now I have to go to not such a beautiful thing, because you are very passionate about the underlying issue of elder care in the United States. What oh. would you like to tell all of us about that? Thank you for that opening. I dedicated this book, of course, to my mother, but I also dedicated to to the people in the homes. And that is those people, all of those people who we will be among, who are living in congregate settings and congregate situations. And we too, you and I are so robust right now, but we will be those tender, vulnerable adults, all of them, if we are lucky to live long and healthy lives, and then that will come. So the homes are also contained in Every nurse, every aide, every person who mops the floor and holds your hand. And those people, those workers, I believe deeply should be well-paid, benefited, well-trained, and should receive the same kind of respect doctors do, lawyers do, because they are caring for those of us who I hope, I think, to some degree, may have ways to teach us all about transition. 
especially when they're the kinds of people who really care about the person and you're not just another dying dead person, dying senior or whatever. Yes. When they really, I experienced that also. My mother was in assisted living before she passed and I'll never, she died and we had the funeral and we came and I had to go up to her apartment in the assisted living. And one of the aides came by and she said, I'm here to give Miss Thelma a bath. And I said, Miss Thelma passed. <gasps> she was really upset. And that really touched me. I'll never forget that. She cared, truly cared about my mom. She was really sad to see that she'd gone, even though she took care of all these people who are all going in the same direction. She... Yeah, those people are the people who are holding our parents' hands and wiping their faces. And they and all the other parts, my goodness. We, and we have this situation now where elder care is in crisis because, we, one, we don't have enough of those kinds of workers. But we also are in a place where we need better facilities. And we're sandwiching these younger generations. They have to caretake their children, but then they're also trying to caretake us. And that's a burden on them as well. And that prevents them from being, from contributing as much as they could and exploring their own artistic and expressive selves in the way that they might. The ideal would be, and the ideal would have been, is if we could have kept her in her home. But our culture relies on the two-person income, family income, so utterly. That is not an easy thing to, to do, and it's often a burden that can't be overcome. So we are going to need to look at, as a nation, this whole process of what it means to care for the elders in the same way that we need to look at. Absolutely, and a lot of people cannot afford to get to make sure they're parents get or the parents can't afford to make sure that they'll be in assisted care one day or all that. So it becomes the responsibility of the children who become the caregivers. And that's so difficult. It is. And part of the book is that tracking that the family decision making, which was not easy. Yeah, I related all through that when I read your book. And there's another statement you make that you feel strongly that many forms of artistic self-expression not only help us to heal, but they tell us back the story of our own healing. I would say that your book is an example of that. Is there anything else you'd like to contribute to that? Thank you for seeing that. I mean, that's so perceptive. I was not just remembering what happened between us, but I know that I was looking for and finding a new lens. I think that's the mm -hmm. metaphor I want to use. The lens had to change several times so that I could make meaning out of what had been a difficult past. And for me, that lens is language, the art of expression in narrative and story. That's the, I had the clay of experience, so to speak, but I needed to see new shapes, taking shape out of that. And changing the lens allows me to re-see what we are. And so I'm gonna say the lens of anger altered to the lens of forgiveness. And inside that open space of her forgetting, there was an open invitation. And that invitation was to the page. And that became expressed in my art, which is memoir. So something like that happens in every single artistic impulse. For every single person, woman, man, there is a discovery from the clay we are given into a kind of revisioning. 
And that revisioning comes from finding that new lens, whatever that is. If we're lucky and we're open to that, there are some people who are not. But those who are open, someone else will express that through music. Someone else will express that through art. Someone else will express that through a podcast or whatever that is. Or dance or like you, finding these incredible ways of bringing healing to people. Yeah, so that's absolutely so true. And I see so many people who are stuck in their story instead of wanting to create a new story. Exactly. Yeah. They stay in a narrative of their past and it's not a narrative that benefits them anymore. They're just, they're unwilling to rethink. And I don't know if it's grief or what it is that will shake people out of that, but you have said openness so many times in this podcast. And I think that's exactly right. Let us let go of our fears. Let us avoid the walls of our old experiences and let's just open to some light here. I have a sign in my, I have a little sign in my office that says the past is a guidepost, not a hitching post. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) And you have an offer for (laughs) Great line, great line. Thank you. Yeah, I'm an author. <laughs> right, you'll remember that. Posted yeah. in a magnet, the past is a signpost, not a hitching post. Do you have anything you'd like? You have an offer for our audience today? I so wish I could I could offer a book, but because it's University of Georgia Press, they can't do that. But anybody who goes to my Facebook author page, I will and gives me a way to send them, I will send postcards and cards and whatever they would like to share. And that would be my honor. What kind of postcards are they? Beautiful beautiful postcards of the cover of the book. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And I will send, I can send a half a dozen and that would be just a real, if people would have those and there, people say they're nice enough to frame. So we'll see. Oh, that's so nice. And and because it says, as long as I know you. Yes. There are so many things that can be said with that as the heading. Yes. Yes. It can be a Thanksgiving greeting. It's a blessing. I'm thankful. I hadn't even thought of that, Irene. And that's a great idea. Yes. So one other question I have is, why do you believe that joy is a gift? Joy is a gift. And I had to really think about this. So thank you for asking that question, because I feel like joy is just something we continually live inside if we are open to it. But I see it. It's a gift because it's a kind of breath. It is an exchange of, this is metaphorical, it's an exchange of oxygen in the body for oxygen in the spirit. And every time we breathe, there's an opportunity for the simple joy of being alive, that consciousness. That's why we use breath and meditation. And I think it's only through joy, however hard one it is, however difficult it is, Only through that that we learn to die well. Only through that can we make that transition more, even more holy and complete complete this stage of the journey. If we embrace joy as our breath, as that great exchange of spirit and body, when the time comes to stop, we simply breathe into a larger universe. Really, we breathe into a lot or we go into a larger joy. The other thing I often say also is the more that you heal, the more open you are for joy. I think that's so true, Irene. Yeah. That's our word open again, but it's true. Yeah, that larger universe. We just become part of the massive, immense breath. So that's my... Beautiful. Anne-Marie, your writings are inspired by the deeply personal, 
the experiences of life, and the richness and pleasure of thinking into the meaning of those experiences. Congratulations on your incredibly well-written, tender, and touching, as long as I know you, the mom book. And I thank you from my heart for our meaningful and moving interview today. Irene, I am just so grateful to you for asking such beautiful and insightful and also rich and tender questions. That doesn't happen all the time. I've had enough interviews, I know. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm really grateful for the opportunity and also the lens through which you see your life. That is a gift to all of us. Thank you. That means so much. Thank you so much for that. You just gave me a gift. Thank you. And here's a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you're watching here on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe below so you'll never miss an episode. I want to thank you so much from my heart, Anne-Marie. And as I like to say, to be continued, many blessings. And bye for now. 